Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, new evidence for the Book of Mormon. In 1978, when I joined the church at the age of 18, I read the Book of Mormon through from cover to cover, and I prayed my way through every page. I received what I consider to be an unmistakable witness from the Spirit that the Book of Mormon is of divine origin. And perhaps on another podcast, I'll tell you more about that experience. But since that time, I have spent the past 40 years studying the Book of Mormon cover to cover in various editions. I have read it in excess of 20 times. It's actually probably closer to 30 times now, but I stopped counting at 20 because really, what's the point after you get to 20 times? I have published articles regarding the Book of Mormon in different venues, including the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies put out by Farms back in the 1990s. And I have also published on the issue in BYU Studies. But I have to be honest that as I have studied the Book of Mormon, one thing has stood out to me, and that is that it bears many marks that it is a product of early 19th century America. It is clear that the Book of Mormon was produced at the time and place that it came off the press in upstate New York in 1830. Among those marks of modernity include lengthy quotations from the King James Version of the Bible in the Book of Mormon. This would have been a hard thing to pull off before the King James Version appeared in 1611 in England. Isaiah is quoted most extensively, not only what scholars now call 1st Isaiah, but also 2nd Isaiah. 2nd Isaiah would not have been available on the brass plates that the Nephites took with them because it was written after 600 B.C. when the Nephites left Jerusalem with the brass plates according to the Book of Mormon. But you don't even have to go to 2nd Isaiah because not only is 2nd Isaiah quoted extensively in the Book of Mormon, so is the New Testament. Most conspicuously, the Sermon on the Mount is quoted in 3rd Nephi chapters 12 through 14. And not only that, a large section of 1 Corinthians 13 finds its way into the book of Moroni. So really, what's the point in quibbling about whether 2nd Isaiah is 2nd Isaiah or 1st Isaiah in this regard, when it's clear that the Book of Mormon is quoting things from the Bible that the Nephites had no business having on the brass plates or having any access to at all? There are a number of other indicators in the Book of Mormon that it is the product of the 19th century. What I want to talk about tonight is the strange fact that in spite of the obvious indicators that the Book of Mormon is a modern production, it nevertheless contains strong and to my mind persuasive evidence that it also has links with the ancient world. Links that Joseph Smith would have no business knowing, nor would anybody else in Joseph Smith's community A number of such connections to the ancient world have been talked about by other authors. Connections such as chiasmus, such as the frankincense trail, such as Nahum, such as Hebraisms in the Book of Mormon. All of these have their relative strengths and weaknesses. But the evidence I want to talk about tonight has to do with the unmistakable presence in the Book of Mormon of ancient numerology as it was practiced among the Hebrews. Now, I hasten to add that when I'm talking about numerology, I'm not talking about using numbers in order to predict the future or taking a person's name and reducing it to a number to somehow figure out what kind of characteristics that person has and what kind of personality that person has. No, what I'm talking about is the use of numerology by ancient writers in order to emphasize and underscore 
stories in the scriptures that are of symbolic significance. The most commonly used of these numbers is the number seven. Seven is a number that is used throughout the Old Testament. It's also used throughout the New Testament. Seven becomes a significant number in ancient Hebrew numerology because of its association with perfection and completion and fullness. The reason that seven has this meaning of completion and fullness is because it itself is composed of two other numbers, four and three. Four plus three equals seven. Well, what's with the four and what's with the three? Four represents the earth. Four is an obvious representation of the earth, at least according to ancient cosmology, when the earth was considered to be flat and have four corners. There were four corners holding up the pillars of the earth. There were four cardinal directions and four winds that blew from each of those directions. So four became associated with the earth. Three, on the other hand, was associated with the heavens. Now this doesn't have anything to do with a telestial kingdom, a terrestrial kingdom, and a celestial kingdom. No, this has to do with the ancient cosmology that the Hebrews held, and which is reflected in the scriptures. The ancient Hebrews conceived of there being three heavens above us. The first heaven, the closest to the earth, is the air that we breathe the sky in which the birds fly. That's the first heaven. Above that is a crystalline dome that extends over the earth. In this dome are contained bright lights, which we see at night as the stars. Also in this dome are windows, which can be opened and closed. The reason that they can be opened and closed is to admit water or snow. Water and snow are the third heaven, which is above the crystalline dome. This is why in Malachi, when it talks about opening the windows of heaven so that rain can come down, so that crops will grow, so that there will be abundance, it is referring to the windows in the crystalline dome of heaven, which are opened to allow the waters above to come down to the earth. And when it's cold, of course, it's snow that comes down instead of water. These are the three heavens that were conceived of by the ancient Hebrews. Therefore, three became associated with the heavens because there were three heavens. Four was associated with the earth. Four plus three equals seven, and therefore seven came to be associated with all things in heaven and earth. It was the number of fullness. It was the number of completion. It was even the number of perfection. As I say, seven is used many times throughout the Bible in symbolic ways. Number one, the creation account is seven days. There has been a great deal of concern and worry and discussion and argument about creation, how it could have occurred in seven days. Were those seven days 24-hour days? Were they a thousand days? Were they a thousand years? Neither of those explanations seems to match the geological record, which would argue for a much longer period of time. And so there's been a whole lot of difficulty in making what science has revealed to us to be the creation period match with what Genesis says is the creation period. I suggest that this is all misguided and actually pretty much pointless because the author of the creation account did not write down that creation of all things in heaven and earth happened in seven days because it happened in seven days. No, the author of the creation account knew that he was writing about the creation of all things in heaven and earth and therefore it was only natural and almost inevitable that he would describe this as happening in seven days because seven is the number that represents all things in heaven and earth. So what would be more natural than for him to make the creation of all things in heaven and earth comprise a seven-day period? This is a good example of the way that an event of great significance to an author anciently could be underscored and emphasized by the use of numerical symbolism. The creation was an important event. We're going to describe it in terms of an important number. 
that is associated with the event. An ancient reader of the creation account would understand this immediately. It's only nowadays, thousands of years later, when we have become divorced so much from the use of numerology as it was practiced by the ancient Hebrews that we have trouble understanding the intended meaning. And we go off on wild goose chases, taking it literally, when actually we should be taking it symbolically. Additionally, some scriptural accounts appear to set the length of the earth's temporal existence at 7,000 years. Taking this literally, it completely contradicts science. But once again, if you take this symbolically, just like with the creation account of seven days, if you take the temporal existence of the earth as being 7,000 years, symbolically, we can understand it is not meant to convey real-world information, but rather it's meant to convey the fact that the fullness of the time period of the Earth's existence is represented symbolically with the number 7,000. In this way, I think a lot of the conflict between science and religion, at least in regard to these two main points of dispute, can be set aside. So I just got done talking about the first example of how the Bible uses the number seven in symbolic ways. Number one, the creation account is seven days. Genesis chapter two, verse three. Number two, the sabbatical year is every seventh year. Leviticus 25 and four. Number three, God commanded Moses to displace seven nations from Canaan. Deuteronomy 7, one. Number four, Elisha commanded Naaman to wash seven times in Jordan to be cured. Now, that's a pretty famous story, so most of you are probably familiar with that one as well. 2 Kings 5:10-14. In Matthew 15:32-37, we have the fifth example. Seven baskets of surplus food are left after the multiplication of loaves. Number 6, Peter asks if he should forgive seven times in Matthew 18:21. And finally, number 7, the seventh example of the use of seven in the Bible is seven churches are addressed in Revelation. That's Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. And as anybody who's read Revelation knows, sevens abound in Revelation. They're all over the place. Interestingly, and perhaps significantly, seven is also used throughout the Book of Mormon in symbolic ways. Number one, there are seven rebellions by Laman and Lemuel recorded in 1 Nephi. Now, I think that we all know, at least if we've read the Book of Mormon, that Laman and Lemuel are always rebelling against Nephi or their dad, Lehi. Then they get reproved by an angel. Then they settle down for a while. Then they're rebelling again, basically, in the next chapter. But if you sit down and actually count out the number of rebellions, there are seven of them that are recorded. In the words of the scholars, this is called a latent heptad. Now, heptad simply means a group of seven. Latent means the text doesn't come out and say, hey, there's seven of these. Instead, it's latent. They're there. There are seven of them. But the reader is the one who has to actually do the work to count them and figure out that there's seven. I want to go through these rebellions in the wilderness very quickly so that you can see that there are indeed seven. Number one, Laman and Lemuel will not hearken to Nephi's words, and Nephi cries unto the Lord for them. In response, the Lord speaks consoling words to Nephi. That's in 1 Nephi chapter 2. In 1 Nephi chapter 3, the second example, after the first unsuccessful attempt to get the brass plates from Laban, Laman and Lemuel are about to abandon the mission and turn back to the valley of Lemuel. In response, Nephi speaks encouraging words to them. Number three, 
After the second unsuccessful attempt to get the brass plates, Laman and Lemuel beat Nephi with the rod. See how these rebellions seem to grow in severity, as well as being seven of them? In response, an angel appears, upbraids Laman and Lemuel, and promises them success on their third attempt. That's also in First Nephi chapter 3, a little bit later on. Number four, while returning with Ishmael, Laman and Lemuel, together with members of Ishmael's family, rebel against Nephi. That's chapter 7, verse 6. In response, Nephi admonishes them. But nothing resolves the rebellion until Ishmael's daughters and wife plead with Laman and Lemuel. Example 5. Ishmael's death provokes a new rebellion by Laman, Lemuel, and others. In response, God himself speaks to them. Rebellion number 6. When Nephi attempts to build a ship, Laman and Lemuel murmur against Nephi. This is in chapter 17. In response, after preaching a sermon, Nephi touches them and shakes them by the power of God. And finally, example number 7. On the voyage, Laman and Lemuel exhibit much rudeness and tie up Nephi. In response, a storm drives them back for four days and threatens to drown them. That's in chapter 18. So those are the latent heptad of the seven rebellions of Laman and Lemuel in the wilderness contained in 1 Nephi. Example number two is that there are seven churches noted in the land of Zarahemla. That's in Mosiah chapter 25, verse 33. This is not a latent heptad. This is a good example of what is called an explicit heptad. In other words, the text comes right out and says there are seven churches in the land of Zarahemla. You don't have to count them to figure out that there's seven. The text says it itself. And of course, Mosiah 25:23, talking about the existence of seven churches in the land of Zarahemla, calls to mind the seven candlesticks of the book of Revelation, which denote the seven churches to whom the book of the Revelation was written. Corresponding to the seven churches in Zarahemla is a latent heptad later on in Alma describing seven converted Lamanite cities and lands which are listed there. Here's what it says in Alma chapter 27 verses 7 through 13. Once again, this is a latent heptad, so you have to do the counting yourself. Now, these are they who were converted unto the Lord. The people of the Lamanites who were in one, I'm adding the one into the text to keep track of the count, the people of the Lamanites who were in one, the land of Ishmael, and also of the people of the Lamanites who were in two, the land of Medoni, and also of the people of the Lamanites who were in three, the land of Nephi, and also of the people of the Lamanites who were in four, the land of Shilom, and who were in five, the land of Shemlon, and in six, the city of Lemuel, and in seven, the city of Shemnilam. So here we see that in counterpoise to the seven churches of the Nephites noted in the book of Mosiah, seven converted Lamanite cities and lands are listed. This not only is a counterpoise, but it also doubles the number of seven to the number of 14. This will become important later on. Let me just say at this point that seven is a significant number. By itself, it means completion, it means perfection, it means fullness. But ancient writers went further with their numbers, and if they wanted to amplify and underscore the symbolic significance of numbers, they had different ways of doing it, one of which was to double it. Seven doubled becomes 14, which becomes a very significant number later on as we talk more about the presence of Hebrew numerology in the Book of Mormon. So we've talked about three examples of the usage of seven so far in the Book of Mormon. The seven rebellions in the wilderness in First Nephi, the seven churches in the land of Zarahemla, the seven converted Lamanite cities and lands listed in Alma. Number four, the Nephite monetary system 
is based on the number seven. We get a rather in-depth description of the Nephite monetary system in Alma 11. There are two different standards described in Alma 11 to the Nephite monetary system. There is the gold standard and there is the silver standard. Let me go through those quickly. The gold standard is based on the number seven. The primary unit in the gold standard was the C9. A seon of gold was twice that of a C9, the shum of gold twice that of a seon, and a limna of gold was the value of all three combined. Now the Book of Mormon doesn't come out and say that this totals seven, but when you do the math, you find that the largest denomination in the Nephite gold system, the limna, equals seven C9s, or in other words, seven of the primary monetary units, which was a C9. The silver standard replicates the gold standard, but it also does something else that involves the number seven. The silver standard uses different names for the units. In the silver standard, the basic unit of value is a senum, which is pegged at the same value as the basic gold unit value, the C9. A senum, one, is doubled to arrive at an amnor, which makes two. The amnor is doubled to arrive at an esrom, which makes four and all three are total to arrive at an onti. One plus two plus four equals seven. So the silver standard is based on seven in the same way that the gold standard is based on the number seven. But the silver standard goes further than the gold standard. Unlike the gold standard, the silver standard sets forth the lesser units of reckoning, which constitute three subgroups of the one unit senum, Remember, senum in the silver standard is the basic unit. And the three subunits of the senum are the shiblon, shiblum, and leah. When you take those three subunits in the silver standard and add to them the four major units, the ones we've already covered in the silver standard, the senum, amnor, esram, and ontai, we can see that the silver standard itself has seven different components to it. Not only do the major units add up to the number seven, the same as the gold standard, but there are actually seven units within the silver standard itself. We hear frequently in church, this is example number five, we hear frequently in church about Ammon at the waters of Sebus and cutting off people's arms with his sword, but it wasn't until I read closely the account that I found out that there are actually seven people that Ammon killed in Alma chapter 18, Verse 16, the text makes clear he slew seven of the marauders. Quote, now six of them had fallen by the sling, but he slew none save it were their leader with his sword. And he smote off as many of their arms as were lifted against him, and they were not a few. So once again, this is a latent heptad. It doesn't come out and say that there were seven, but it does say that six of them had fallen by the sling, and he slew none save it were their leader with his sword. So I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to figure out that six plus one equals seven. Example number six of the use of seven in the Book of Mormon in symbolic ways is the seven deadly sins of the Nephites that are listed by Mormon as being the cause of their ultimate overthrow. This is found in Alma chapter 50 and verse 21. Once again, it's a latent heptad. You have to count them in order to find out that there are seven of them. Here's the quote. And we see that these promises have been verified to the people of Nephi, for it has been one, once again, I'm adding the one to the text to keep track. For it has been one, their quarrelings, and two, their contentions, yea, three, their murderings, and four, their plunderings. 
five their idolatry, six their whoredoms, and seven their abominations, which were among themselves, which brought upon them their wars and their destructions. Alma 50, verse 21. And finally, rounding out our seventh example of seven being used in the Book of Mormon symbolically, is the seven missionary companions which were taken by Alma on his mission to the Zoramites. This is found in Alma chapter 31, verses 6 through 7. Here's what it reads. Once again, I'll add the numbers to the text so we can keep track. Therefore he, Alma, took one Ammon and two Aaron and three Omner and Himni he did leave in the church in Zarahemla, so he doesn't get counted in the list. But the former three he took with him, and also four Amulek and five Zeezrom who were at Melech. And he also took two of his sons. Now that's going to be five plus six and seven. He'll name them here in the next verse, verse seven. Now the eldest of his sons he took not with him, because remember Alma had three sons. Now the eldest of his sons he took not with him, and his name was Helaman. But the names of those whom he took with him were six Shiblon and seven Corianton. And these are the names of those who went with him among the Zoramites to preach unto them the word. So the text makes a point of saying that Alma did not take all four of the sons of Mosiah with him, but only three of them, because Himni he left in the church in Zarahemla. On top of the three of those sons, he took Amulek and Zeezrom, who he had picked up since then through his missionary efforts. And finally, he doesn't take all three of his sons, but only two of them, Shiblon and Corianton, so that there are three plus two plus two which equals seven missionary companions that Alma takes with him. So now I have listed seven examples from the Bible where seven is used in a symbolic way, and then listed seven examples from the Book of Mormon where seven is used in a symbolic way. I ended up listing 14 such usages, two times seven. Why did I make two lists? To illustrate that multiples of seven are used to enhance the symbolism. Doubling seven to 14 is the numerological equivalent of capitalizing, underscoring, and bold-facing the significance. Now, we also see multiples of seven in the Bible. Number one, Jacob served Laban seven years for Leah, then another seven years for Rachel, if you remember the story in Genesis chapter 29. Number two, Joseph prophesied seven years of plenty, followed by what? Seven years of famine in Genesis 41. Number three, Israelites circled Jericho seven times on the seventh day, Joshua chapter six. Number four, Passover is held on the fourteenth day of the first month, Leviticus 23, five. Number five, Solomon has a feast for seven days and seven days, even fourteen days, 1 Kings 8.65. That's the quote, seven days and seven days, even fourteen days, to make sure that the symbolic significance is not being missed by the reader. 6. God tells Elisha a remnant of 7,000 faithful Israelites remain. 1 Kings 19.18 Let me pause for a second to add that symbolic significance of 7 and other important numbers can be underscored not only by doubling them, but also by multiplying them by 10 or frequently by 1,000. So when God tells Elisha a remnant of 7,000 faithful Israelites remain, that is seven times a thousand, which emphasizes, according to the rules of ancient Hebrew numerology, the symbolic significance of the event. Once again, we think about the scriptural description of the temporal existence of the earth being 7,000 years. It is clearly symbolic. So that's an example of seven times 1,000 in the Old Testament, 
An example of 7 times 10 comes up famously in the Old Testament as the 70 princes of the tribes of Israel. That's carried over into the New Testament when Jesus calls the 70. Similarly, an example of 4 times the number 10 occurs with the 40 years that Moses and the Israelites been wandering in the desert in the Old Testament. That is, of course, recapitulated in the New Testament in Matthew's account of Jesus fasting for 40 days in the desert before he is tempted by Satan. So we can begin to see that these numbers are all over the scriptures, not only as four, not only as three, and also as seven, and then twelve, but in the multiplications of these numbers by the number ten, and also by the number one thousand. One more stupendous example of this we find in the last book in the Bible, the book of the Revelation, where the number of high priests are numbered at 144,000. That is 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there you have 12 times 12 times 1,000 to come up with what the author considers to be the superlatively, numerologically symbolic number of 144,000. And the seventh example of multiples of seven in the Bible is that when Peter asks if he should forgive seven times, remember what Jesus answers. Jesus tells Peter to forgive 70 times 7. So once again, the multiplication underscoring the symbolic significance. Now, let's look at the symbolic genealogy of Jesus. We're all aware that in the book of Matthew, it begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And it is very carefully structured along numerological lines in order to show how important this genealogy is. Here's what I mean. Doubling 7 for symbolic effect finds its way into the New Testament where Matthew takes pains to list the genealogy of Jesus in three groups of 14 generations each. Now remember, once again, three is an important number because it's the number of heaven. 14 is an important number because it's double seven. And Matthew makes the genealogy of Jesus fit into three groups of 14 generations. From Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the destruction of Jerusalem are 14 generations, and from the destruction of Jerusalem to Jesus are 14 generations. But here's the important part. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is clearly artificial. In Matthew's third list of 14 generations, there are actually only 13 names. It is Matthew who insists there are 14 Count them yourself. It's in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Additionally, when you compare Matthew's genealogy with the Old Testament, you will find Matthew skips several generations in order to make the number come out to 14. In other words, it is more important for Matthew to have the number come out at the symbolically significant number of 14 than it is to accurately count the actual number of generations. This is important. Matthew wants to use the number 14, and he wants to use it three times. Why? To further enhance the symbolic significance of what is going on. Why is Matthew doing this? Because Matthew is not giving a history lesson. Matthew is teaching something. What is he teaching? Matthew is teaching a divine design. He is teaching that God is in control of the history of Israel. He is teaching that every 14th generation something of immense significance happens. And he is teaching 
that fourteen generations after the Babylonian captivity, something significant was bound to happen and that something significant was Jesus' birth. What this tells us is extremely important for our further study of the Book of Mormon, and it ends up being what I find to be the tipping point to convincing me that the Book of Mormon is using numerology intentionally along the lines of ancient Hebrew numerology. Now, any number of people, any number of years, any number of things has to have some number associated with it. There's going to be all sorts of numbers all over the place, and even by coincidence, some of those numbers are going to be numbers that were considered significant according to ancient Hebrew numerology. That's what coincidence looks like. Some of the examples that I've already given could be coincidence, although the more coincidences there are, the less it looks like coincidence. But still, it would be conceivable that they are coincidence. Here, it is clear that Matthew is structuring his narrative of Jesus' birth in order to make it symbolically significant, in order to make it three sets of 14. And the reason we know that is because we have not only Matthew's account of Jesus' genealogy, and we can count that the last group of 14 is really 13, but we also have the Old Testament with the genealogy in it that shows that Matthew is omitting several generations in order to make his list come out at 14. We have a real world, and I'll put that in air quotes for now, we have a real world genealogy of people in the Old Testament, and then we have a symbolically crafted genealogy in Matthew. And because we have both, we can see that Matthew is consciously constructing his narrative to teach something much more important than a dryly accurate genealogy. He is teaching that Jesus is an important part of God's plan for Israel. A correct listing of the genealogy pales in comparison. Matthew is teaching a more profound truth than simple accuracy. Matthew is teaching the deep truth of God, and he is using numerology to do it. Now that we've talked about the use of three sets of 14 in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, we're prepared to talk about the three sets of 14 in the book of Alma. Alma appears to be structured around the number 14, and in fact they appear in three sets. The first 14 years of the book of Alma cover Alma's activities among the Nephites. That's in Alma chapter 1 through 16. The next section covers the same 14 years but it is covered in a flashback relating what the sons of Mosiah were doing during that same period of time, and that's Alma 17 through 27. We know both periods are 14 years because the book of Alma begins with the first year of the reign of the judges. Alma has just assumed the office of both chief judge and high priest in Mosiah 29:42, while the four sons of Mosiah have headed off to preach the gospel to the Lamanites in Mosiah 28 verse 9. But when Alma happens to meet the sons of Mosiah in Alma 17, we are expressly told that the sons of Mosiah had been teaching the word of God for the space of 14 years among the Lamanites. That's Alma 17.4. That is the key. It tells us not only that the mission of the sons of Mosiah to the Lamanites lasted 14 years, but also that the account given of Alma's activities after the sons of Mosiah left is 14 years. So now we have 14 years doubled. It's doubled by way of a flashback. 
that covers the exact same period of time. We recall that Matthew mentions 14 generations of Jesus three times for emphasis. The book of Alma will do something similar. It isn't done with the number 14 yet. And here we come to the war chapters, which comprise the second half of the book of Alma. Surprisingly enough, the war chapters in Alma also comprise 14 years, and you can count them yourself. This period begins in, quote, the commencement of the 18th year, unquote, of the reign of the judges, that's Alma 43.4, and continues through to the end of the 31st year of the reign of the judges, that's Alma 62, verse 39. When you add that up, you will see that is 14 years. And so we see that the book of Alma is structured around three sets of 14 years. Number one, Alma's 14-year ministry among the Nephites. Number two, the concurrent 14-year ministry of the sons of Mosiah among the Lamanites. And three, the 14 years of war between the Nephites and the Lamanites. As with Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, the author of the book of Alma appears to structure the narrative to present three sets of of 14. But it doesn't end there. And to my mind, it just gets more impressive as evidence for the Book of Mormon. As suggestive as these examples may be, the crucial test to my mind is those instances in which the author takes real-world information and consciously shapes it to create a different number that is symbolically powerful. This part is critical because it is one thing to list various items that tally the number of 7 or 14 in a text. It is another thing entirely to show examples where the author has taken real-world information and consciously edited that information to arrive at a number of numerological significance as Matthew has done. The Book of Mormon appears to do this very thing in at least three instances. Number one, the seven tribes of the Book of Mormon. Early in the Book of Mormon, the Lehite tribes are numbered at seven, consisting of, quote, the Nephites, Jacobites, Josephites, Zoramites, Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites. Count them up at seven. That's from Jacob chapter one, verse 13. But here's the problem. There were not seven Lehite tribes. There were eight what happened to Sam? We know that Sam had descendants, and hence there should have been a Samite tribe. We know he had descendants from 2 Nephi 4.11 where they're referenced. The author of the Book of Mormon has taken eight tribes and consciously reshaped the narrative in order to make the number of tribes tally to the symbolically significant number of seven. But did the author just forget about Sam when he made the list of seven? No, he did not. This is no mistake. The author recognizes that Sam has descendants and would therefore have a tribe, but instead of counting Sam's descendants as an eighth tribe, the author provides a reason for not including Sam, writing that Sam's seed shall be numbered with Nephi's seed. That's 2 Nephi 4.11. We see something similar in the Old Testament's insistence that the tribes of Israel be numbered at 12. And by the way, 12 is a significant symbolic number. Whereas 7 is 4 plus 3, 12 is 4 times 3, which may well be why it is that it has the significance, anciently, that it holds. 
You remember that Jacob had twelve sons, and each son was a tribe. So there were twelve tribes of Israel. But after they made it out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and into the promised land, there was a division of the land according to the different tribes. Now by this time, the numbering at twelve had become more difficult, and here's why. Joseph's share was now divided between his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. That's why there is no land share in Israel. For Joseph, there's one for Ephraim, there's one for Manasseh. The problem here is that raises the number of twelve to thirteen. In order to maintain the number of tribes at the symbolically significant tally of twelve, the tribe of Levi was excluded when Ephraim and Manasseh were mentioned as separate tribes. And you can find three examples of that. Numbers one thirty-two through thirty-four, Joshua seventeen, fourteen through seventeen, and first Chronicles seven and twenty. This modification of thirteen tribes back to twelve it was justified by the fact that Levi's descendants did not receive a land inheritance because they served at the temple as the priestly tribe. This sounds very similar to what the Book of Mormon does with its tribes. It appears the Old Testament modifies the figure of 13 tribes to 12 in order to maintain this important number, in the same way that the Book of Mormon modifies the figure of 8 tribes to 7, omitting the tribe of Sam, which the Book of Mormon goes out of its way to draw special attention to by pointing out that Sam's seed is being numbered with Nephi's. This is precisely the type of superimposition of Hebrew numerology on the real-world information of a text we would expect to see by an author immersed in a culture similar to that of the ancient Hebrews. But before we leave the subject of Sam, let me tell you a couple more things that I find fascinating and very strongly suggestive of the ancientness of at least some elements of the Book of Mormon. We know next to nothing about Sam. Pretty much the only thing we know about him is that he was a brother of Nephi and that Sam's seed became numbered with Nephi's. This is 2 Nephi 4.11. 2 Nephi 4.11, as it turns out, is also a chiasmus. I'm going to expect that anybody listening to this podcast already knows what a chiasmus is, but it's an ancient Hebrew literary structure. And part of the formulation of this structure is that, as a general rule, the most significant and important point is going to be at the center of the chiasmus. And indeed, this is a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 part chiasmus into the center part, and then 6 going out from the center part. The center of the chiasmus, and therefore the most important part of this verse, is that Sam's seed shall be numbered with Nephi's seed. It's a difficult thing for me to convey a chiasmic structure over a podcast, but I'll give it my best shot. This is how the entire text reads. This is the verse. Blessed art thou and thy seed, for thou shalt inherit the land like unto thy brother Nephi. This is Lehi's blessing to Sam. And thy seed shall be numbered with his seed, and thou shalt be even like unto thy brother, and thy seed like unto his seed, and thou shalt be blessed in all thy days. So reading that verse again, and trying to describe the chiasmic structure, which you can diagram for yourself, it is A, blessed, B, art thou, C, and thy seed, D, for thou shalt inherit the land like unto thy brother Nephi, E, and thy seed, F, the center, F, shall be numbered with E, now we're moving our way out, sub E, his seed, sub D, and thou shalt be even like unto thy brother, 
sub C, and thy seed like unto his seed, sub B, and thou shalt be, sub A, blessed in all thy days. So not only do we have numerology coming to bear in this one verse in the Book of Mormon, but we also have chiasmic structure. The only thing that makes this more interesting is not only do we have ancient Hebrew numerology present and chiasmus present in this one verse, we also have Egyptology present because it appears that Sam is an Egyptian name and Sam in Egyptian meant uniter or united, which is a very close equivalent to be numbered with. His seed, Sam's seed, would be united with Nephi's seed. Sam's seed would be numbered with Nephi's seed. That's why I consider it such a close equivalent. The use of the name Sam as uniter or united can be found in books other than those written by Mormon scholars because I expect that some of you may be somewhat suspicious about this and frankly I might be myself which is why I had to see it for myself in a non-Mormon publication. The non-Mormon publication from which I'm deriving this quote is Egypt Under the Pharaoh's History Derived Entirely from the Monuments, Volume 1, page 425, published in 1996 by Bracken Books in the UK. And here's the quote. Among the new names which were given to the king after the festival of his accession to the throne, we find the phrase Sam-Ta or Sam-Tawi, which means uniter of the two worlds. The quote goes on, The reason of this appellation is given in the following words uttered by the king himself. He, Ammon, has united Sam, the countries, Taui, of all the gods, in this, my name, Tutmes Samta. So it is clear from non-Mormon Egyptological scholarship that the word Sam means united or uniter in ancient Egyptian. This correspondence takes my breath away, to be frank with you, in a small verse which is never used in church. It's basically a throwaway verse as far as my interest in the Book of Mormon is pretty much anybody's interest in reading the Book of Mormon. There's no big story here. There's no doctrine taught. There's nothing dramatic happening. It's just talking about how Lehi is blessing Sam and saying, hey, Sam, your seed will be numbered with Nephi's seed. And what we have present in this throwaway verse is not only chiasmus, and not only Egyptology being present, or at least a connection with the ancient Egyptians, which seems unmistakable to my point of view, but also the presence of ancient numerology as it was practiced among the Hebrews. Going back to the seven tribes of the Book of Mormon briefly, we know that they're artificial. We know that there were actually eight tribes, but there are seven that are listed. And the Book of Mormon lists these artificial, though numerologically portentous, seven Lehite tribes three times over the course of the Book of Mormon. In Jacob 1, chapter 13, the Book of Mormon lists the seven Lehite tribes. Again, it lists them in 4th Nephi, chapter 1, verses 37 through 38, and the third time in Mormon 1, 8 through 9. So the Book of Mormon lists the seven Lehite tribes three times. Something is going on here, and it doesn't seem to me it's likely to be coincidence. There are connections that the Book of Mormon has with the ancient world that seem inexplicable to be accounted for by its production in upstate New York 
in the early part of the 19th century. But this is not the only time the Book of Mormon molds real-world information to make it numerologically significant. The second example is the seven-year food supply in 3rd Nephi. When the Gadianton robbers became a dire threat, the Nephites and Lamanites joined forces and gathered themselves in one location to protect themselves. And here's what the text says in 3 Nephi chapter 4, verse 4. Having reserved for themselves provisions and horses and cattle and flocks of every kind, that they might subsist for the space of seven years. So once again, seven years is used. Is this a numerologically significant use of seven years? Or is the author just saying it because it was seven years? The reason this appears to be a numerologically significant usage of seven years is because the text later informs us the provisions lasted much longer than seven years because the siege itself lasted between eight and nine years. From the latter end of the 17th year, that's 3 Nephi 3.22, the latter end of the 17th year, until the Nephites returned to their own lands sometime in the 20 and 6th year. And even then they had not eaten up all of their provisions, 3 Nephi 6 and 2. So the real world information about the siege tells us that the Nephites' provisions lasted between 8 and 9 years and still had provisions left over, whereas the earlier account says that they had reserved for themselves provisions to subsist for the space of 7 years. Is this another instance of the author consciously manipulating real world information of provisions for an eight to nine year siege by reducing the actual time period to the symbolically significant period of seven years. Well, it sure looks like that it is. I suppose somebody could say, well, you know, they earlier said it was supposed to be for seven years and then Joseph Smith or whoever was writing this lost track of the actual number of years and didn't keep track of it and turned out between eight and nine years and it's just sort of a mistake. Well, it sure could be. The problem I have is this. Scholars take certain tools and apply them to their studies of ancient texts, including the Bible. One of those tools is numerology. When they take that tool and apply it to the Bible as well as other ancient texts, they find the text is responsive to the use of that tool. They're able to identify places where numerology is present, where numerology is being used, where the author is actually using numerology in order to try and underscore the importance of a significant event. When we take those tools and find that they have the same type of application to the Book of Mormon, and the Book of Mormon responds to the use of those tools in the same way that the Bible and other ancient texts respond to the use of those tools, intellectual honesty demands that I sit up and take notice and say, maybe there is something going on here. There appear to be connections between the Book of Mormon and the ancient world that I am unable to account for by coincidence or by somebody like Joseph Smith or one of his contemporaries writing into the text. It strikes me as vanishingly unlikely that this would happen. Could it happen? Yes, it could happen. Anything is possible. But if we have to go to the point that anything is possible, would we not also have to concede that it's possible that the Book of Mormon has authentic and demonstrable ties to the ancient world. The third example of this in the Book of Mormon, and remember, the Bible only has two that I can identify. The one about the 12 tribes of Israel 
becoming 13, then being reduced to 12, and Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. By the way, let me add here that perhaps there is another example in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, which we understand is not identical to Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. But whereas Matthew has Jesus' genealogy be three sets of 14, if you actually count the number of generations that Luke has for Jesus, back to Adam, it's 77. And I think that there may be more than coincidence in that too. So possibly that's a third example. But in the Book of Mormon, we have three examples. Three clear-cut, to my mind, examples of the Book of Mormon taking real-world information and then changing that real-world information to make it symbolically significant. We've talked about the seven tribes of the Lehites. We've talked about the seven-year supply of food in Third Nephi. And now we're going to talk about the third example, which occurs in Alma 51, verses 23 through 26. It lists seven Nephite cities taken by the Lamanites. The text here is so critical, I am going to quote the entire passage, 23 through 26 of Alma 51. Keep your eye on the city of Nephi ha, because that's where the action happens. As you can guess, there's going to be seven cities, but notice what happens with Nephi ha. Here we go. Alma 51, 23 through 26. And it came to pass that the Nephites were not sufficiently strong in the city of Moroni, therefore Amalickiah did drive them, slaying many. And it came to pass that Amalickiah took possession of one, the city of Moroni, yea, possession of all their fortifications, and those who fled out of the city of Moroni came to the city of Nephi, and also the people of the city of Lehi gathered themselves together and made preparations and were ready to receive the Lamanites to battle. But it came to pass that Amalickiah would not suffer the Lamanites to go against the city of Nephi to battle, but kept them down by the seashore, leaving men in every city to maintain and defend it. And thus he went on taking possession of many cities. Okay, now, you remember, he first took possession of the city of Moroni at the beginning of this passage. Now he goes on to take more cities. And thus he went on taking possession of many cities. To the city of Nephi, ha, remember that's the one you got to watch. To the city of Nephi, ha, and three, the city of Lehi. Once again, I'm substituting the numbers in. This is a latent heptad. And four, the city of Morianton. And five, the city of Omner. And six, the city of Gid. And seven, the city of Mulek all of which were on the east borders by the seashore. We can immediately see that the number of cities taken is seven. But what on earth is going on with the city of Nephi? -ha? First, Amalickiah refuses to go against the city of Nephi. -ha. Remember that from the passage? Let me read that part again. But it came to pass that Amalickiah would not suffer the Lamanites to go against the city of Nephi -ha to battle, but kept them down by the seashore leaving men in every city to maintain and defend it, and thus he went on taking possession of many cities to the city of Nephi. -ha. What is going on with the city of Nephi? -ha? As I say, first Amalickiah refuses to go against the city of Nephi, -ha, but in the next breath we are told that he took possession of it. Not only that, the city of Nephi -ha was not actually captured by the Lamanites until five years later when Amaron, brother of Amalickiah, sent his armies against it in Alma chapter 59 verses 5 through 12. It's five years later. It's eight chapters later in the Book of Mormon. Here we have a wrinkle in the text. Why does the author go to such lengths to include the taking of the city of Nephi -ha in his list when the city is not taken for another five years? And why does the author even make the story somewhat nonsensical in order to do so? First, Amalickiah won't go against the city of Nephi -ha, and then all of a sudden he's taking it? The answer is apparently that the author wanted to have a list of seven cities 
and not six that were taken by the Lamanites, and that he was willing to sacrifice chronological accuracy and even the textual flow of the story in order to do so. Here is yet another example of the author consciously shaping real-world information in order to arrive at the symbolically significant number of seven. Now, I could probably leave this subject here and feel that I've made my point adequately, and perhaps I should, but there are some other amazing instances of the number of seven in the Book of Mormon. This next one was discovered by Brant Gardner. They are not seven-year periods, but seven-year time gaps. Well, technically they're periods, but they're gaps in time. They're in 4th Nephi, chapter 6 and 14. Not only is it seven-year gaps, but it's three of them. And here's what Brant Gardner says about it. It's from his paper, Mormon's Editorial Message and Meta Message, Fair Conference Address 2008. Here's what he says. This repeating pattern occurs three times in 4th Nephi and never anywhere else in the Book of Mormon. The triple repetition confirms that it is not random and not associated with Mormon's source text. Mormon is telling us something. He has moved from real time into symbolic time or from history into story. The repetition of seven-year gaps suggests that he is deliberately using the spacing symbolically likely to mark a week of years. So that's the end of his quote. Now these seven-year time gaps go from the year 42 to the year 49, obviously a seven-year time gap, the year 52 to the year 59, and then later from the year 72 to the year 79. It's three time gaps. Let me read that to you from 4th Nephi so you can see what it is I'm talking about and you can see that a person reading the Book of Mormon is not naturally going to conclude this, much less a person who's writing the Book of Mormon is not naturally going to put it in there. Again, this is a place where nothing is happening. It doesn't seem important for any reason except that there are three time gaps of seven years each mentioned in 4th Nephi. So here it is from 4th Nephi chapter 1 verse 6. And thus did the 30 and 8th year pass away, and also the 30 and 9th year, and 40 and 1st, and the 40 and 2nd. Now those are all in order. Now it skips 7 years. Yea, even until 40 and 9 years had passed away. So there's the first 7 year gap. He goes on. And also the 50 and 1st, and the 50 and 2nd. Yea, and even until 50 and 9 years had passed away. So there's the second gap of 7 years. That's verse 6. Then it describes things that are going on during this time period. And in verse 14, it gives the third gap of seven years. And here's what it says in verse 14. And it came to pass that the seventy and first year passed away, and also the seventy and second year, yea, and in fine, till the seventy and ninth year had passed away. There's the third seven-year gap in fourth Nephi, and I never would have seen that in a million years, except that Brant Gardner pointed it out in his fair presentation from 2008. Thank you very much for that, Brant Gardner. And now something I want to add, because I realized this only while I was recording the podcast, is that we have three gaps of seven years each. We just read the text. Three gaps of seven years equals a total of 21 years. Three times seven equals 21. I could not help but notice that the last year ends on the year 79 
and then there is a gap between the year 79 and the year 100. I just read the text. It goes from 79 to 100. And 79 to 100 is in itself and by itself a total gap of 21 years, thus possibly re-emphasizing and recapitulating the 21-year gaps of seven years each that have immediately preceded it. Let me read that passage once more from 4th Nephi. I find this fascinating, having just seen this for myself. And it came to pass that the seventy and first year passed away, and also the seventy and second year, yea, and in fine, till the seventy and ninth year had passed away. So that's the third gap of seven years for a total of twenty-one, three times seven. And then after it says, till the seventy and ninth year had passed away, yea, even an hundred years had passed away. So it jumps from 79 to 100, which if I'm doing the math right, is 21 years. So we have three gaps of seven years, which equals a total of 21 years. And then after that third gap, immediately after that third gap that ends with the 79th year, it jumps to the 100th year, which is itself 21 years later. So in conclusion, the number seven and its multiples were of symbolic significance in the ancient world. I think we've demonstrated that, including among the writers of the Old and New Testaments. The number seven and its multiples are also of symbolic significance in the Book of Mormon, which purports to derive from the same Old World Melu as the Bible. Most importantly, the Bible contains instances of the author consciously and intentionally manipulating real-world information in order to arrive at a symbolically significant number. This is more than mere coincidence and indicates not only an understanding and appreciation for old-world numerology on the part of the authors, but a willingness to superimpose that numerology on historical events to change the tally to the desired symbolic number. The Book of Mormon does exactly the same thing. Regardless of one's opinion as to who wrote the Book of Mormon, the text itself shows sure and unmistakable signs that the author or authors were not only aware of the significance of Old World numerology as it existed among the ancient Hebrews, but intentionally and consciously incorporated that numerology into the fabric of the Nephite record. So where does this leave me about my position? on the Book of Mormon. I have had a witness which I believe was from God that was sure and unmistakable that it is divine. I believe that it is inspired. At the same time, I know through my studies that it shows clear indications of being a product of the early 19th century. And yet, in spite of that, I also recognize through my intellect that in spite of the fact that it is a product of the early 19th century, it has seemingly clear and unmistakable ties and connections to the ancient world. Connections that I cannot convince myself at this point are something that could have been written into the text by somebody in the early 19th century, especially not Joseph Smith or any of his associates. Where does this leave me? I believe the Book of Mormon is of divine origin. I believe it is a product of the 19th century. And I also believe it has connections with the old world. I do not believe it is wholly a product of the 19th century, nor can I believe that it is wholly a product of the old world. The Book of Mormon is something unique. It is something mysterious. 
It seems to be something that combines elements of both the old and the new. As Jesus says in Matthew 13:52, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. In this way, the Book of Mormon seems like the treasure referred to in Jesus' parable, out of which are brought things new and old, and possibly at this juncture where new and old meet is where inspiration happens. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.